The Buddha once said that just as the great oceans have but one taste, which is the taste of salt, so too does this path and this teaching have but one taste, which is the taste of freedom. And that this taste of freedom pervades, infuses the whole of the teaching and the path from its most gentle surfaces to its unfathomable depths. So this evening I'd like to reflect upon this taste of freedom as it really runs through the Satipatthana Sutta. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that discourse, the Satipatthana Sutta is one of the primary sources and the primary discourses about insight, meditation, and mindfulness. Now, that teaching or that discourse begins with the words that this path and this practice has only one direction and one outcome, and that is freedom, the unshakable liberation of the heart. When Siddhartha took his seat under the Bodhi tree, that wasn't the beginning of his story or his journey. But as we do, do, Siddhartha brought to the Bodhi tree the story of his life and the understandings that had already been born of that story. He'd learnt certain lessons from living his life as a young, privileged boy and man, a life of indulgence, a life of sensory gratification, security, position, role, privilege. And the lesson that he'd learnt from that life was that it did not intrinsically bring to him enduring peace or happiness or freedom or protect him from the rhythms of life of which he was a part, birth, aging, sickness, and death. Siddhartha also brought to his seat under the Bodhi tree the understandings that had been born of his life as an ascetic, the years that he'd spent as an ascetic, a life that at first seemed to be lived as a reaction almost to his life of indulgence and pleasure. And Siddhartha also discovered that self-denial, that abusing himself, avoidance, disconnection, equally didn't bring the enduring peace and happiness and freedom he longed for. And these lessons from the extremes in his life that he brought to the Bodhi tree were deeply important lessons in terms of really finding, understanding what a middle path actually was. 
what the middle path is between the extremes of indulgence and rejection, between the extremes of craving and aversion. He, through those lessons of his life, he learned about the importance of inclusivity, of turning towards his life rather than fleeing from it, but turning towards his life as a ground of his awakening. He brought, Siddhartha brought to the Bodhi tree the lessons that he'd learned about generosity, the power of generosity knowing that it was a very simple gift of kindness and generosity in, in the form of a rice milk offered by a young woman, as Siddhartha had lain pretty much dying from self-mortification on a riverbank, and that that simple gift of generosity had saved his life. And those lessons of generosity taught him something about the need to care for his body and gave really rise to another important lesson that he also brought to his seat. The ethics of loving kindness, of caring for his life, of not harming anything or anyone, including himself. But the importance of bringing to all things in his life an attitude of openness and welcome. Now these insights that Siddhartha brought to the Bodhi tree in a very real way set the stage for his journey, for his path. They were turning points in his attitudes and understandings. And these they became, these lessons became really the ground, the foundation of his awakening. Now, like Siddhartha, our own journey and our own story and path really doesn't begin the moment we take our seat in formal meditation. There are lessons we have all learned from our lives that we bring. There's lessons that we've all learned from our lives about what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. We've all learned lessons in our life about what leads to unhappiness and despair and about what leads to happiness and peace. And we bring these lessons to our seat. I certainly find that, you know, Westerners coming into practice often come into practice already with a tremendous amount of insight, understanding that they have gleaned from their lives, that as a culture we we do tend to be often reflective and aware and investigating people. And in truth, we have learned really many of the same lessons that Siddhartha learned. We've probably all learned the lessons that aversion and resistance really only magnify suffering. I'm sure we've all learned from our lives the lessons of the importance of kindness and patience, qualities so essential if we are to meet our life just as it is. I'm sure we've all learned the lessons that disconnection and fear do nothing 
but serve to make us feel powerless and impotent in the face of life's realities. And in truth, fear and resistance only disable our capacity to meet the sometimes intractable, intractable adversities and hardships that can be part of our lives. And that fear and resistance also disconnect us and disable, only serve to disable, our capacities for joy and sensitivity and freedom. I'm sure, like Siddhartha, we have all learnt the lessons that endless sensory gratification offers only temporary pleasure. However, if you were to see some of the news stories of Oxford Street right now, you'd think we're slow learners. <laughs> However, I'm pretty sure we know this. We do know this, that temporary pleasure is not the same as freedom, and it's not the same as enduring happiness. I think we've also possibly discovered the wisdom and the need to find a middle path in our life, a calm ground somewhere between the middle ground between the inclination to succumb and the inclination to overcome. And like Siddhartha, we too long to taste the freedom that we know is possible. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta begins with the encouragement for us to take our seat in a forest, to take one's seat in an empty hut or at the root of a tree. It is really an encouragement to take our seat in mindfulness. It is also an acknowledgement of the wisdom and the loveliness of solitude. The need to find these spaces, to collect and to gather ourselves from the busyness of our lives. Solitude in this teaching is never an encouragement to flee from the world, but to really treasure awakening and, and to know that no matter how much we may be surrounded by people who love us and people who care about us, that this journey and this path of understanding and freedom is a path we need to walk for ourselves. No one else can actually walk that path for us. And to a step to take our seat in solitude, to take our seat in mindfulness, to do this is already a little bit of a taste of freedom. Because we are learning how to be upright. We're learning not to lean upon anything. And this is already a gesture of freedom. We're learning to take our seat in that solitude and seclusion is, is in many ways a real statement of confidence in our own capacity to be awake. To be here is already a surrender or a relinquishing of despair and powerlessness and it's a statement of confidence in our willingness and capacity to meet ourselves and our lives. To stop running. To stop 
fleeing and to return home simply to be here. It is a taste of freedom as we learn to do this, as we learn to let go of all the agitation and the fear that is involved in endlessly, uh, the endless efforts to avoid and to flee from the difficult in life. It is also deeply important to acknowledge that as we take our seat here, it is always also a taste of appreciation and joy, the appreciation and the freedom that comes from letting go. You know, when Siddhartha sat underneath the Bodhi tree, you know, he sit just, sat just like we sit here. He didn't have a different mind than we have. He didn't have different adversities or an easier life than we had. In fact, when he sat underneath the Bodhi tree, he experienced all the waves that all of us can experience of doubt and fear and and agitation and and a sense of insufficiency. And in the evening of his enlightenment, when Siddhartha sat beneath the Bodhi tree and was faced with so much doubt in his capacity to be awake, he learned to meet that doubt. And his expression of that freedom and that confidence was simply to reach over and to touch the ground and to say, the earth is my witness, that the earth bears testimony to my capacity to be free. I think as we take our seat in solitude, it is also a shift in understanding of even what it means to be free. Because I think we begin to sense that freedom is something much more than the license to pursue the passing ephemeral uh, desires and impulses that arise in our mind. The freedom that this path offers is the unshakable freedom from greed, from hatred and delusion. The freedom that this path speaks about is the spiritual autonomy and the unshakable peace and steadiness and liberation of heart of not being governed by anything. And paradoxically, to know that quality of inner freedom which is so unshakable We're sometimes asked to curtail and restrain some of the passing whims and impulses and desires, habits, that we may have previously defined our freedom by. If you think about that here, we give up a lot of that. We give up those passing impulses, you know, whenever a moment of boredom is met, you know, to pick up something to read or distract ourselves. We pick up, give up those passing impulses just to get away from any moment that feels slightly disturbing in order to discover a deeper quality of freedom. As we take our seat, just as the Buddha did, we really do sit surrounded by our life. You've all experienced it here, how your life and everything in it has followed you onto your cushion, has followed you into your walking path. 
And as we sit and walk, we can almost get a sense of it feels sometimes as if we're sitting in the center of a circle. You know, surrounded by all those that we love and we those that we struggle with. Don't they visit you when you sit on your cushion? We, we sit that we, we, in a way, we sit with all the adversities and joys of our life. Don't they visit you when you sit on your cushion? We sit with our likes and our dislikes, our histories and our hopes. And they are all here with us. And it is amidst all of this that we are encouraged to cultivate and to explore that taste of freedom, being able to will and willing to welcome all things. You know, there's a great Chinese verse which says, the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. You know, and in truth, the path of mindfulness is really asking us to find the great way to find, to bring the receptivity and interested, intentional awareness into this circle, excluding nothing, cultivating a calm, kind, non-judgmental attentiveness to be with our world as it is. Freedom as it is taught in this path is not outside of this life. It is in the heart of it. Freedom, as it is taught in this teaching, is not outside the difficult or the painful. It is not outside of suffering, but within it. And it begins with tasting that freedom of being willing to be unconditionally present, to give up aversion. is to give up a whole lot of fear and anxiety and apprehension to give up the tendency to welcome only the pleasant is to give up being a hostage to the pleasant. We bring this unconditional attention and mindfulness first to our breathing to be aware of the body of the breath. So what is the freedom that we can begin to taste The Buddha described mindfulness of breathing as a noble and divine way to practice. We might say that mindfulness, the purpose of mindfulness of breathing, is to taste the freedom of a stable, balanced, non-dwelling, calm mind, heart. To taste the freedom of a mind and a heart that is truly a friend. Calming the mind through mindfulness of breathing is the way and one of the direct ways to free us from the restlessness and the agitation of mind which can so easily be lost in past and future, in rehearsal and speculation and in all the stories we are prone to tell ourselves. It's important to understand that the mind, the heart that is free from agitation, is not a vacant mind. It's not bland, it's not blank. But it is almost like the falling away of restlessness and agitation and aversion 
It, it is like the falling away of that allows us to discover a mind, a heart that can be remarkably alive, sensitive, immediate, appreciative, inclusive, spacious, spacious. And also a mind that is creative, that can reflect well, that knows how to think well. You know, some people sadly have this idea that, you know, meditation practice, a good meditation practice, is one where you have no thoughts. Plenty of time to have no thoughts after you die. Before that, there's a lot we need to understand. And our mind is actually an ally in this. And quite frankly, I'm never, ever interested in teaching people not to think. But I'm deeply interested in teaching people how to think well, how to reflect, how to investigate, how the mind can truly be a friend. Now, in the, in the sutta, the instructions are actually incredibly simple. The instruction says, know your breath as it is. If the breath is light, know it is light. If the breath is, is deep, know it is deep. If the breath is long or short, know it as long or short. To experience the whole body of the breath, to find and to cultivate a sense of oneness, a sense of fusion with the breathing. The instruction goes on to know the beginning of the breath to know the end of the breath, and to begin to calm the formations of the breath, to begin to calm the formations of the mind. And the formations that are calmed through mindfulness of breathing are the formations, the constructions of tension, of restlessness, of dullness, of aversion, and in terms of insight, you know, because this is even a question that came up in the group I had yesterday, you know, what is the relationship between mindfulness of breathing and insight? It's a good question. And in terms of insight, what we begin to see that our relationship to our breathing is a microcosmic view of many of the relationships that we have in our lives. That in our relationship to our breathing, we do get a glimpse of how suffering and struggle can be born and how suffering and struggle can come to an end. In many ways, it could be said that the whole of the path is held within this first instruction to be mindful of the body of your breath. You see it in practice, how many ideas we can have about how our practice should be. Hmm? What we should be experiencing. Even how many ideas we can have about how our breathing should be, what the right breath looks like. We can struggle to control and to mold our breathing, to conform to our ideas and expectations of how it should be. Now, this is a little glimpse, you know, we may do this elsewhere. This may actually, there's nothing we do in our practice that doesn't happen elsewhere in our lives. 
As we come to know our breathing just as it is, whether long or short, deep or shallow, rough or smooth, what we're really learning to do is we're learning to let go a lot of these demands and expectations about how things should be. And we're really learning that calm simplicity of our li- aligning ourselves with the simple truth of the breath as it is. This is a life lesson about our aligning ourselves with the simple truth of our life, moment to moment, just as it is. It is a hard lesson for us to learn. It's a very difficult lesson for us to learn in our lives, to let go of all the shoulds and the wants and the expectations. And we usually learn those lessons the hard way through suffering. We learn about the painfulness of holding on to the ideas of how life, how you, how I how this moment should be, because we know that the gap between the way things are and the way that we want to to be is just an ocean of tears. Now there is a deep, there is a deep inner freedom and happiness in learning to release the shoulds, because it is also a lesson in learning to release the blame. The voice that endlessly sings the songs of disappointment. You know, you disappoint me. I disappoint myself. We actually begin, can begin to taste in mindfulness of breathing the freedom of shouldlessness. The freedom of blamelessness. We taste the freedom of letting go within mindfulness of breathing. We taste the freedom of letting go of the heroic effort that we make in our lives to control our thi- all things. We begin to align ourselves and embrace the unpredictability of conditions in this life. The unpredictability of conditions that we are not always in control of. When we can embrace that deeply, which is an incredibly profound insight, we begin to really sense the possibility of the profound ease that may be available to us, learning to live with life just as it is. As we experience the whole body of the breath, as the whole body of the breath is experienced, as we dive deeply into that knowing, we are also essentially learning to let go of the breather. It is just a small but a significant glimpse of the freedom that can be found Because it is not only about not identifying with the breather, it's about not identifying with the doer, with the thinker, with the experiencer, with the winner, with the loser, and ultimately not to identify with the sufferer. You can sense this in mindfulness of breathing. You know that when you you begin the practice, you sort of sit back, you know, you're watching your breath. You're observing your breath. You feel yourself. You're the breather. 
that you really find as the calmness begins to emerge, as the ease begins to emerge, as the agitation and the aversion falls away, so too does that sense of the breather really begin to soften and soften and also fall away until the breath is just breathing itself. And there is no breather present. The next instruction is to calm the body, bodily formations. To calm the bodily formations. Breathing in, calming the bodily formations. Breathing out, calming the bodily formations. Now, in many ways, this is really quite an organic development. It's quite an organic unfoldment. It's it's not even that it needs a particularly extra intentionality. Because you can really begin to see that as agitation and the restlessness in our minds begins to calm through the deepening of mindfulness, that that calmness is really reflected in our bodies. You begin to feel the whole body begin to soften to relax, to feel more transparent, more more spacious. And one of the most precious gifts that we can offer to ourselves in this life is the calming of agitation and restlessness that so inhibits the peace that is possibly of our heart, in our, possible in our hearts. Now we begin to taste that freedom. It is not easy you know, because we see that the habit of agitation, the habit of aversions can be so powerful in our lives. So we train ourselves one moment and one breath at a time to come back, to let go, to be still, to be here. And that willingness to do that begins to bear fruit. And it bears fruit in that emerging sense of calm, of peace, of ease. The sensitivity of being free within the breathing. Now that freedom that comes within mindfulness of of the breathing, in a way serves as a natural foundation in which we expand our awareness, expand our attention, and this is how the discourse describes it, we begin to contemplate our bodies. We've spoken about this in the retreat. With an uninterrupted mindfulness, whether sitting or standing or walking or lying down, that we contemplate the body internally and we contemplate the body externally. Why? Because just as we can suffer within the body, so too are we asked to find the path to the end of suffering within the body. So how do we suffer in the body? With fear. Fear sometimes of our mortality, our death. We fear pain and illness and aging. All of this happens within our bodies. None of us are exempt. It is a simple truth. It's also a simple truth that there is so much lovely within the body. 
all that the body can do to express and experience love and affection and care and commitment, all these things that we deeply value. But so too is there that which is unlovely and difficult in the body, pain and intractable illness. And we see, we begin to see the insight in the contemplation of the body. That certainly there is a level of body dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, which is unavoidable in this life. Quite frankly, it starts the moment we're born. It's just part of having something that is born, is that things happen that are out of our control. But we also see that there is this optional level of dukkha that is born not of having a body, that is born of identification. It says, I am my body. My body is myself. It is that identification with the body which creates far more torment in this life than any changing conditions can ever cause. It is that identification with the body that leads us to evaluate, to despise, to compare, to fear. We can see that there is so much anger and aversion that can happen within our relationship to the body and that is born of identification. So what are the insights, the freedoms that we are encouraged to find within the body? I mean, the Buddha puts so much emphasis on contemplating the body. But, you know, we all, we, we, most of us have contemplated our body lots throughout our whole lives. You know, we look in the mirror and we contemplate our body, you know. Oh, look at me, you know, and I'm terrific today. You know, if you really want to see where there is identification, you know, spend 10 minutes in front of the mirror, see what your mirror, see what your mind does. It's very rarely neutral. So we do contemplate our bodies our whole lives. And we especially contemplate our bodies when things go amiss. But, contempl- but we don't always contemplate our bodies with insight. And this is what is encouraged in the discourse. To know, first, just to know there is the body. Second, to know the body in the body. And third, to know the body, like all things, is born of conditions and subject to conditions. And fourth, to know that the body, like all things born, is held within a natural rhythm of life, of arising and passing, birth and death. The taste of freedom that is encouraged in this contemplation is the freedom born of not clinging, not identifying with the body as self. In a way, we're learning to liberate the body from the suffering of aversion and craving. It's a tremendous act of compassion for the body. The Buddha once said that to practice mindfulness of the body is to find the way to partake of the deathless. To find the way to partake of the deathless. That the contemplating the body can be the source of tremendous liberation. Now it is not easy to contemplate the body as the body. Most often we find ourselves contemplating our ideas and emotions and views about the body. 
And this is what we're asked to really understand. To do this again and again in our practice. Because within our views and our reactions to our body, this is where we bring mindfulness instead of aversion. This is where we bring mindfulness instead of fear. To look at what it would be like to live in this body without the addition of clinging and selfing. To know the body as it is, is to unlayer many of our habits of aversion. And to learn to be at ease within this body, with, with wisdom and compassion, is learn to embrace all bodies and all life with wisdom and compassion. Will we really understand moment to moment? You know, the practice of insight meditation really emphasizes this. Contemplate your body until you see the sensations in your body changing so quickly, so immediately, living in this changing, unpredictable world of sensation in the body. To know that so intimately that you stare impermanence in the face. <laughs> that you stare the truth of impermanence in the eye and then you ask yourself what you are going to do with that truth. What you are going to do with that truth. I mean, the Buddha once said, you know, that the, the deep understanding of impermanence is the most powerful and transforming of all understandings. Why? Why? What is the insight? You know, we know intellectually everything changes, but what is the transforming insight of understanding and permanence? There is nothing we can cling to. There is nothing that we can grasp hold of. There is nothing that will stand still for us. There is nothing that will last. That could look like bad news. It could look tremendously liberating. It could be, could be such a profound doorway to the liberation of the heart. Not grasping hold of anything, not clinging to anything, not laying claim of anything, not even calling this body mine. It's a remarkable freedom. It allows us to be upright in the midst of all things. You know what we're really doing here on a cushion, although you know we don't put this in the brochure. We're actually learning how to die. We're learning how to die. That's it's not bad news. But what we're really learning to do is we're learning how to truly relinquish this clinging identifying that causes so much suffering in our life. To hold on to nothing. And this taste of freedom can be found powerfully in our body. Liberated, our body, liberated from clinging and craving and fear, becomes a powerful vehicle of compassion and love and empathy and sensitivity. We expand that contemplation to contemplate feeling. Again, this has been spoken about. Not emotion, but the bare feeling within all experience of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And sometimes people ask, you know, why is feeling a foundation of mindfulness? You know, it doesn't look that complicated. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. In truth, it's not complicated, but it is certainly the place where we begin to build our world. 
It's a place where we begin to construct our personal reality. And that is why feeling is the second foundation of mindfulness. You know, the Buddha said, on contact the world arises because on contact there is feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And that is where we build our world. The instruction is first simply to know the feelings as feelings with such clarity and immediacy that mindfulness is present before the onslaught of our reactions and impulses and projections. That mindfulness is present with feeling before the onslaught of aversion and craving and disconnection. How do we suffer within feeling? And how do we taste freedom within this contemplation? Think of so many examples today. You know, somebody smiles at you in the hallway. You're so happy. Nobody smiled at you the whole day. Maybe nobody smiled at you for three days. Somebody smiles at you in the hallway. It's a pleasant feeling. Notice immediately, you know, I really like that. You know, I think I'll seek that person out, follow them around, you know. You know, somebody frowns at you in the hallway. Maybe it looks like they've been frowning at you for three days, you know. The unpleasant feeling, how do I get away from that? This is so terrible, you know, they're really after me. You know, I really have to do something about this. The whole world of agitation is born of craving and aversion. And it's all our world. It's our world. Some things in this life are pleasant, some things are unpleasant, some things are neutral. A lot of it is quite subjective. How do we taste the freedom? Well, you know what we're learning to do in mindfulness practice? We are learning to unhook the unpleasant from the reaction of aversion. We're learning to unhook the pleasant from the reaction of craving and clinging. And we are learning to unhook the neutral Vedana, the neutral feeling, from the reactions of delusion and disconnection. (coughs) So in a way, what we are doing when we do this, and this is, 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 I could go on and on about this, but what we're really doing when we unhook feeling from craving, aversion, delusion, is that we are unhooking feeling from the past. Because, you know, why do we, you know, find ourselves liking one thing, disliking another, disconnecting from another? Because that liking and disliking and craving and aversion is drawing upon a whole history, a whole lifetime of associations. So we keep freezing things. We keep freezing the present from the perspective of the past. And what we're really learning to do in mindfulness practice by liberating feeling from the underlying tendencies is we're also liberating feeling from the world of association. So we're allowing the moment to be as it is, to be seen anew, to be seen with freshness. This is a liberation within the world of feeling. Just as we suffer, it seems like we suffer within feeling. We don't actually. We suffer in our reactions to feelings. We also find freedom, the taste of freedom, within that world of feeling. What do you notice about feelings? First of all, one thing, they're pretty impermanent, aren't they? 
I mean, the only way to make a feeling last would be as if this world of sensory impressions and perceptions stayed exactly the same. And since that is not going to happen for any of us, so too is this world of feeling going to be so ephemeral, so shifting, so changing. There's a lot of spaciousness in that. There's a lot of spaciousness in that. To allow things to arise in path according to their own rhythms. One sutta asks us to regard this world of feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, like the winds in the sky. You know, sometimes cold, sometimes wet, sometimes warm. You know, all those winds that move through the sky, so too they are like the winds of our feeling. Most of us would see the futility of arguing with the weather. But don't always see the futility of arguing with the world of feeling, do we? Oh, this shouldn't, this unpleasant thing shouldn't be here. Well, my goodness me, you know, why not? You know, this pleasant thing should last longer. You know, we're arguing with the world of feeling. We're trying to make it into the world that we want it to be. We must see the total futility of that. You know, sometimes we just need to smile at what we're doing in this life. To taste the freedom within the world of feeling is to be not bound by feeling not bound by the underlying reactions not bound by aversion not bound by craving not bound by delusion we could also ask ourselves who is feeling would not always be a bad question to ask In this practice, in this path, we are invited to imagine a life that is not governed by greed or by wanting or by hatred or by fear or by aversion. We are asked to imagine that life for ourselves, a life of sufficiency, a life of peace, a life of calmness. We are asked to imagine that life for ourselves. We're encouraged to find and to explore that taste of freedom in the mind, to understand that this mind exists in a state of potentiality, that our capacity for joy lives side by side with our capacity for despair and depression, that our capacity for restlessness lives side by side with our capacity for serenity, that the mind's capacity for dullness lives side side by side with the mind's capacity for remarkable clarity and creativity. What does it mean to have a mind that is free, to have the liberated mind? The Buddha speaks of the mind, and this means the heart, as luminous, as radiant, as limitless, as bright, as imbued with understanding, with kindness, as liberated from contractedness and dullness and distortion. And the Buddha encourages us to know the liberated mind as the liberated mind. That is the outcome of this path. Now that begins actually by knowing the mind just as it is, without judgment. But to really know what it means to be mindful of our mind. 
with curiosity, with, with dedica- dedication, with investigation, to be mindful of the mind, not avoiding anything. Being aware of the mind is like using a mirror to see our own reflection. Being mindful of the mind is like using a mirror to see our own reflection. And in that mirror, we see the changing shape of the mind moment to moment. Contractedness, spaciousness, collectedness, distractedness, sadness, elation, the lovely, the unlovely. It is all held within the same mirror. We begin to see with some immediacy what leads to suffering in the mind and actually only each one of us can know that for ourselves. What is it that leads to suffering within the mind? And what is it that leads to the end of suffering within the mind? We can't know that unless we're really mindful of our own mind. And there's no greater no greater gift, but also no greater responsibility in this life than to be mindful of our own mind. To ask ourselves, what is the mind that is liberated and what is the mind that is bound? And certainly begin to taste the freedom that is not clinging to anything in the mind. You know, the Buddha said, you know, the essence of my teaching is to cling to nothing as me or mine. That includes our thoughts, our imaginings, our projections, our fantasies, our constructions, our stories, to cling to nothing as me or mine. Then we begin to taste the freedom of the naturally collected mind. And the Buddha spoke about this freedom within the mind. He likened it to being suddenly liberated from indebtedness. He likened that freedom into the mind like stepping into the coolness of the shade of a tree after being out in the hot hot sun. He said this freedom is born of non-clinging. Again, not clinging to anything in the mind does not leave a vacuum behind it. It is what allows the mind of kindness, of compassion, of empathy to be born. A moment to moment, this is our practice, to cultivate the liberated mind and to taste the freedom to really taste it for ourselves, the freedom of not clinging to anything as me or mind. And this teaching, this practice, is really about learning to love that taste of freedom, to love it above all things, because it is loving that taste of freedom that really allows the world of habit and the world of suffering to begin to fall away. And the Buddha said that when we taste that freedom within our own heart, that that taste of freedom begins to pervade the whole of our lives. Our relationships, our engagements with the world, our acts, our speech, that all of it begins to carry the same taste, the taste of freedom. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.